Greetings in Jesus' name. It's been a blessing to be here and to hear from many, many hearts this morning. That's a blessing. Bless Tim and Cheryl. I know um, as uh, it went on, I didn't want it to stop, even though I know that uh, as I'm going to preach the main message, that time can run out. I already have the message. I'm making two messages instead of one on the topic I have, so maybe I can make three <laughs> if it goes too long. So... Um, Thank you. Thank you all for sharing children's lesson and the opening. This morning, like I said, the message today is one of several messages where we will study the doctrine of salvation from various angles. It's difficult to get all those perspectives in one hour. So um, I want to have at least two messages on salvation and then maybe another one on how the early church walked it out. You know, if we all to put it all together in one message, who can remember a 12-point sermon? Hardly anyone. So I... I, did, I, I got the first part of it down to three, and I realized that's too big, so it's actually down to two. And if it gets too long, it'll be down to one this morning. So that's what we'll focus on. Before we do that, why don't we just stand again for a word of prayer? If you can. Lord, we just pause before you. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. Lord, none of us would be here. None of us, Lord, would be here with thankful hearts, with blessed hearts, with overwhelmed hearts, except it were for your grace. And Lord, as we, as we study your word this morning, I pray, Lord, you would pour out upon us your truth and your blessing, your spirit, your direction, Help us, Lord, to be better equipped to, uh, to walk in with you and in, in the midst of this world. And pray, Lord, that if we're not equipped, Lord, that you would help us, that you would show us, that you would guide us. So, Lord, we are looking to you this morning. It is your power and it is your grace that moves us, and we thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Salvation. None of us are going to get out of here alive. Can you imagine boarding a jet airplane and the doors close, you go out the runway, you take off, 
And when you're in the air, a terrorist opens up the cabin door and he tells everybody that this, the several hundred uh, passengers on this plane, that this plane has been hijacked and none of us are going to be out of here alive. Well, we are all on a trip. We are all on planet Earth. And none of us are going to get out of here alive. When Christian in Pilgrim's Progress was bemoaning uh, about his fear of death, he met a man called Evangelist. And Evangelist asked pointed question like Tim Sizett does in discipleship class. He said, well, why not welcome death since life is, I think he used it old English language, since life is such beset with so many troubles. Why not welcome death? And Pilgrim said, because I fear that this burden which is upon my back will sink me lower than the grave. So he's not ready to die. When's the last time you read Pilgrim's Progress? Did you ever read it, your children? Good. Recommended reading. So we're all headed for death, and after that, the judgment, the Bible says. And we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I'm not going to delineate all the judgment. I don't know what your eschatology is. And receive in our body what we're done, whether it be good or bad. The point is, there will be a judgment. You could say there are two kinds of people, and you would be true to say that. It's the saved and the unsaved. It's the two eternal destinations. There are two masters. There are two ways. And so we could rightly say this morning there are two groups of people. But in these messages, I'm going to look at three groups of people, three states of mankind. And you could divide these groups into subdivisions also. But after all, who can remember a 12-point sermon? So we're going to stick with three groups. It's not actually original with me. John Wesley is the one who came up with this, at least, I don't know if it's original with him or not. And I actually preached a message similar to this 17 years ago in one message. You know, Proverbs describes people with different characteristics. He describes the people as simple. You have to fool. We have to scoffer. We have to scorner. We have to sluggard. We have to wise. We have the wicked, lots of different um, def- uh, characteristics of people, people at different places. And, you know, as you relate to people, you need to, uh, what do they call this, an emotional intelligence, or what is that called? <laughs> Where you actually read people. You know, if you're talking to someone, about something, and he's simple. The Bible is simple. He's naive. He's untaught. 
and you're talking to him about a certain subject, you can talk to him differently than you can if you talk to a scorner. If he's a scorner, he will respond differently to the same thing. And so as you're relating to people, you need to at least have some understanding and, and determine who you're talking to. And then you need to relate to them accordingly because different people are at different places. In fact, we all are. What kind of a person am I? So it is with these three states of mankind. Three states or conditions of human existence. And I'm going to use what John Wesley used, the names, and I'll describe them a little more later. Number one is the natural state. Number two is the legal state. And number three is the evangelical state. Everyone is in one of these three states. I am in one of those three states, and so are you. Everyone you meet is in one of those three states. Everyone you don't meet is in one of those three states. This morning, I am prepared to share about two of those states, if we get through there, if we get that far. So, we'll start with the natural state. We like things natural, don't we? All natural is a good marketing tool for food. So, is the natural state of a man a good state to be in? What is the natural state of man? In 1971, there was a man who discovered in the Philippines a isolated tribe of people, a completely untouched tribe of people that had never been, in, uh, never been exposed to any outside influence or Western world or anything like that. They were living, um, they were uncorrupted. From the modern ideas, modern religions. And he discovered them. And National Geographic got interested in this because that's their business to uh, investigate different tribes. So they came and they did a, um, whatever, they, they uh, had an article and they, 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 they uh, investigated them and had an article about them. I didn't read the article. I would, I would have if I could have found it, but I couldn't find it, so I, I can't read it. But what they found is there was a people uncorrupted, a natural people. They didn't have even a word in their language for enemy or war. They were in their pristine state. They were a natural people uncontaminated by us. After they were done investigating them, they closed the area off that no one gets in to uh, destroy their identity and their culture. Thirteen years later, they discovered it was a hoax. Somebody, this man, had gotten some people in another tribe to go in here and set the whole thing up and set it up that it looked like they were an isolated tribe. They weren't. 
So they weren't a pristine people without a name for war after all. Thomas Hobbes, a 17th century English philosopher, famously said that war is the natural state of man. Competition, selfishness, and my way is the natural state of man. And then he said, that is why a strong central government is needed to protect men from each other. That's a philosopher. Biologist Richard Dawkins, in his book, The Selfish Gene, states that a predominant quality in successful surviving gene is ruthless selfishness. Your selfishness, by the way, is genetic now in his mind, okay? And he explains it that this selfish gene will occasionally or will usually give rise to selfishness in individual behavior. Now, liberal theologians in the early 20th century described human nature, natural human nature, as basically good. Basically good. They need only proper training and education. Well, what does God say? Liberal theologians describe man or human nature as basically good, needing only proper training and education. Where is mankind naturally? And you can turn. We'll be in Romans chapter 3 for a little bit, at least for this part. Romans chapter 3. What then? Are we better than they? That's, of course, talking about the Jews versus the Gentiles. No, in no wise, for we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. All under sin. Now, that's a specific phrase with a specific meaning. And I'm not going to unpack that all under sin now. I'm not actually going to do it this morning. I might in the next message, but all under sin has a specific meaning, but just take it at face value. All under sin does not seem to mesh with man is basically good. Would you agree? All under sin. And let's keep on reading here, verses 10 to 18. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. At first glance, we might say, that can't be it. I mean, not everybody's feet are swift to shed blood. 
Some people are very kind, naturally, it seems. They have intact lives, they have good relationships, and they seem to have it together. So how shall we connect this, what we just read, with reality? Well, first we need to remember, God is true, every man is a liar. Let's get that settled. That is true. God's word is true. God's word is true and will be shown so in the end. But let's look at some of the terms here. The natural man, they don't understand. The natural man does not understand. That's what it says there. There's none that understandeth. They don't seek after God. They are all gone out of the way. There is no fear of God in them. So, some are comparatively good. Talk about the natural man. Some are comparatively bad. But the natural man is not connected with God. You know, that's not the worst part about the natural man, that he's not connected to God. Well, that is bad. But the fact is, the natural man is content to stay there. He is unaware, at least in his spirit, of the judgment that will come after death. He is in bondage, and he feels at home in his bondage. He is in mortal danger of God's judgment, but he doesn't know it or he doesn't consider it well. It's like children. Children, if you would be playing at the edge of a cliff. I know we went to Chickie's Rock already. I think they have a fence there now, don't they? Do they have a fence at Chickie's Rock? Maybe they do. Okay, okay. They used to not have a fence, and you can still climb over the fence. But imagine the children... Like happens after church services here sometimes and they get to running around. And there would be no fence at Chickie's Rock. We'd go to hike at Chickie's Rock. And the children would begin to climbing over the rock and they'd ride at the cliffs and they'd be all over the place. And they are oblivious of one misstep and they're down. Down on the train track 200 feet below. Their little children are oblivious, can be oblivious playing at the edge of a cliff. That's the natural man, lost, separated from God, and not aware of it. So the question you could ask, are there true atheists? Some say there aren't. I don't know. The Bible doesn't really say conclusively. But there are definitely many, many atheists in practice. They live their own personal lives unaware of the coming judgment and penalty. They may even be very religious. They may even talk about God, but they don't know him. Now, a question is, who are all these natural people, the natural man? They are the thieves and the druggies and the prostitutes and the porn makers And all the bad people you can imagine, that's who they are. They are. And they are the doctors, and the lawyers, and the professors, and the teachers, 
and the government workers and the presidents and the business owners and the fathers and mothers, the construction workers, the uh, theologians, the motivational speakers, the pastors, the seminary students, all these categories, the natural man is in all of them. And that's only a partial list. And why, may we ask, are so many people in this state? Well, the one simple question is because it's the natural state. (laughs) Everyone is naturally there by default. We're born there. It's who we are by our nature. It's as easy to be a natural man as it is for water to flow downhill. You don't have to do anything. A natural man, it's easy. Okay, so what is the matter with the natural man? Since we're all born in that state, and since that's the raw material that we have to work with, why not just accept him and instruct him? And educate him. Why not teach him how to pick up his socks and comb his hair and not to burp in public and to introduce himself properly and to teach him to be a good team member and other relational skills. Educate him and teach him how to take care of people and the animals and the earth. And how to dialogue instead of divide. And how to compromise instead of fight. And over time, giving enough of educational resources, we're going to have a level of utopia with the natural man. Why not? You know, the president of Princeton University there in New Jersey during the 1930s, said to his students, he said, we can fix this world. We have the knowledge and we have the science to do it. We only lack the people to do it. He told that to the class. Later on, in a later class, he said, I said we can fix the world but lack the people. He said, "Um, that is no longer true. He said, we now have the people. He said, you are the people. You can fix the world. And the world is waiting for you to do it. And by that time, you of course probably know, Princeton was no longer a school meant to put preachers out to preach the gospel. You understand that. The world is waiting for you, and we can fix it. John Wesley had this to say of the educational elite that he spent so much of his life with. He said, nowhere is nowhere are people more confident in themselves morally than in academia, where the imagined prevails that inverterate sinners are perfectly capable 
of thinking of themselves as having unhindered capacity to talk rationally about their abilities and freedoms, and their capacity to reason their way out of human predicament through education, cleverness, and invention. I don't know, that was sort of a long-running sentence. I don't know if you could follow that or not, but basically, there's a lot of pride in academia, let's say it that way. Wow, you know what? It actually sounds like Oxford. (laughs) That was, I mean, Princeton. Oxford sounds like Princeton. That was Oxford in the 1700s, Princeton in the 1900s, and they sound the same. I don't think man had changed a lot. Wesley goes on. He said, such is natural humanity, where dwells a chronic sense of deluded self-congratulation about human wisdom and goodness. He fancies himself as walking in a kind of natural liberty, as a freely self-actualizing person. Such are the imaginations of the natural self, largely unaware of the turbulent history of sin. So the question remains, what is the matter with the natural man? Romans 8, 7 to 8 says this, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. A few more descriptions of the natural man. The carnal mind and the flesh that I just read here, that describes the natural man. That's the natural man's state. By nature, man is fallen. By nature, this man is corrupt, depraved, twisted, and deeply rebellious. He is insubordinate. And law-breaking. God says that this man is in enmity against him. That means this man is hostile against God. He does not submit himself to God's laws. In fact, he is so bad that he can't. And God says, this man will not, cannot ever please me. The natural man. Second Thessalonians says this. I'll read a few verses where Paul is talking to the Thessalonians and they were um, being in some kind of a persecution. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. The future of the natural man is quite dire. The prognosis is bad. Everlasting destruction and flaming fire. Well, Some people 
actually leave the state of a natural man and they enter another state. And I think I'm going to try to go through this till 1130 here. And that is called the legal state. Some people that are playing at the edge of this cliff become aware that there is a cliff. There's some light beginning to shine in their heart. That light may come in small increments or it may come in a big flood at once. Now, light is a good thing, right? Is light a good thing? Okay. Why do some people love darkness rather than light? Because light reveals things. Some people don't like the light because their deeds are evil and it exposes it and they don't like it. So they go back into the dark. But light is good. Let's look at a testimony and you can actually turn to Romans chapter 7. We'll spend most of our time in Romans chapter 7. Let's look at a testimony of someone to whom light came to. Romans chapter 7 verse 9. It's Paul's testimony. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, when sin came, when light came, I'm sorry, when light came, sin revived and I died. So light's a good thing, but light did something negative. Light did not show a pleasant sight. The light revealed the true condition of the soul, the moral bankruptcy, the failure and inadequacy of a life in the sight of God. Wesley says of this experience, he said, a floodlight is shining on my sin. It is not shining on God's mercy at this point. I feel myself to be naked as if things were open to him with whom we have to do. Whereas previously I had felt clothed in a kind of fantasy of innocence, now I experience radical vulnerability with my fig leaves stripped away. That's what happens when light comes, the light of um, the God's law comes. And I think that was partly what the rich young ruler that came running up to Jesus experienced. Now he must have had some kind of uncertainty in his heart. That he came running, but he had a lot of fig leaves. And he came up running to Jesus, and what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus left him put those fig leaves on real well, and then he stripped them away. And the man saw his own heart, and he went away sorrowful. The light did not help him. He refused to, to submit to God. So what is a normal thing for a person to do when confronted with this sense of sin and this sense of a displeased God who's going to judge this sin? What's the normal response? Try to stop doing the bad things and try to start doing good things. That's a normal response. Try to do something to appease that sense of guilt and inadequacy. When I was 12 years old, 
I was in seventh grade in school. And we were not a pristine, uncontaminated, isolated tribe, believe me. We were not. We, we did things that, were, that I knew were bad, and light was coming on in my heart. I knew I was guilty. I knew I was wrong. God was his conscience. I mean, his word, and my conscience was speaking to me. And I knew I needed to do something. I knew I needed to stop doing these things, and I needed to start doing right things. But I thought, I reasoned, well, no, if I, I start doing that, what will my friends think? So I, did, I reasoned this way. I said, I, I can't do it during school. But when summer is out, I'm going to make a clean break. When summer's out, I'm going to switch over. And I'm going to stop doing those bad things. And I'm going to always be back there. And I'm going to start doing only good things that are ease to my conscience. What do you think I discovered? The same thing Apostle Paul did. Romans 7 is a description of this man, the man under law. Romans 6 and 8 describe the Christian. Romans 7 does not describe the Christian. For the rest of the message, we will look at Romans 7 and get a good view of the legal man or the man under a law. You know, we could actually make a full message of just this part, so I will try to do justice without skipping it too much of it. So um, I'm going to read Romans uh, verse 5 right now. For when we were in the flesh, the natural man, the motions of sins, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. That's what happened when you're in a natural state. I'm going to read it in the English Standard Version. It's a little more clearer. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. We were in our natural state, then the law came and aroused our sinful passions. That's Paul's testimony that he says, when the law came, sin revived, and I died. So, the law came, and it brought a negative effect. Light came, brings a negative effect. What is the natural, or what is the logical response to that? That is to... Romans 7, 7. Let's look at it. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Since the law brought such a negative effect, then something must be wrong with the law. That's the natural response. So, get rid of the law. It must be inherently bad. In fact, that's what the predominant atheists of our day do. They say religion has caused so much evil in this world that the proper response to that is to get rid of all religion. Because religion is bad because it stirs up people's passions and they go to war against one another and they, uh, 
and they split up things and they can't agree and it just religion is bad. It stirs up all those passions, and so we need to get rid of religion. That's a natural response. The world would be a better place without it. Trying to see what I can skip. But what does God say? Well, what does he say there? What does he say after uh, it's the law of sin? What does God say? Anybody? God forbid. God forbid. Okay, good. Why not get rid of the source of trouble? Well, because the law is not the source of trouble. It's not the source of trouble. But the law did bring a lot of trouble. In uh, In... Verse 9, Paul says, I died. Verse 10, he says, I found to be unto death. Verse 11, the law deceived me and by it slew me. So what do you think? Was Paul happier now than he was before the law came? No, he was not. But the law is not the source of trouble. The law exposes the real source of trouble, which is sin. Sin in these verses, and I'm not going to read, uh, we have enough time, we just read through the whole chapter, but sin is actually personified as a person, as an entity, let's say it that way. You know, like you can make a corporation. When you establish a corporation, the corporation becomes a standalone entity. And the government treats this corporation as a person because it's its own entity. That's not a person, but it's an entity. Sin in these verses becomes its own entity. Sin is pictured, sin did this, and sin did that. In fact, later on, Paul says, it's not I, but sin that did this stuff. Sin took over. Sin is in control. Sin is ruling. It's running the show. It's calling the shots. It's making you do this, and it's not allowing you to do that. That's what sin is doing. Romans 9 to 12, for I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking a occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it, the law, it slew me. Wherefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Now, someone is still confused, Paul anticipates. So, in verse 13, he says this. Now, well, how, how, how can that be? Did the law, which is good, cause my death? That's what he says. Was then that which is good make death unto me? Did the law do that? And he says, no, God forbid. You know, maybe that's why I like Paul. Paul is detailed. He always anticipates the, uh, the, the rhetorical question. He anticipates what somebody's going to say, and so he gets it from all angles. So he's going to, he's going to now, from 13 on, he's going to describe what he means why, no, it's not the law, it's Something else. 
Sin used what was good in me to bring about my condemnation so that we can see how really terrible sin is. Sin is so bad that it uses God's good law for its evil purposes. Sin is really, really, really bad. This personified sin is really, really bad. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Now, I like to put to rest, I have put to rest something in my mind. I'd like to see if I can put something to rest in your mind this morning about Romans chapter 7. Many Christians think this part of Romans is a description of the Christian struggle with sin. And I don't think it is. Now, don't write me off yet. I will explain. Do Christians struggle with sin? Yes. They're not fully sanctified. We do face temptations and we do fail. And sometimes our temptations are brutal and sometimes our failures are repetitive. Paul does not say that Christians do not struggle with sin. He's not saying that. But you should not use these verses to describe the Christian struggle with sin because it is not talking, in my opinion, it is not talking about the Christian struggle with sin. This is talking about a man under the law that is defeated by sin. And there is a difference. I'll give a little more explanation here. Someone outside to say the grace of God. So before we go on with the description, I'm going to use some verses. In verse 14, he says, I am carnal, sold under sin. This is his experience, whoever this man is. Sold under sin, present state. Sin is the master. I am sin's slave. I am sold as a slave. He's sold to a master. A master has power over his slave, and a slave has to do what? The master says. And that is consistent with the rest of of, uh, chapter 7. He has to do what sin tells him to do. But let's look back at Romans chapter 6. Verse 17. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin. That's that's past tense. You were the slaves of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Then being made free from sin, that's being free from the slavery to sin, ye became the slaves of righteousness. Now let me ask you, can you be a slave of righteousness and a slave to sin at the same time? Now, we're talking about two different things here. Romans 7 is not a description of a Christian struggling with sin. It is a description of someone defeated by sin, controlled by sin, and in bondage to sin. It's a description of this legal person, this man in a legal state. Now, this man has enough light to agree with God. He sees that God's law is good. He has enough light to know that some of what he is doing is wrong 
and it's bad and that he ought to stop it. His conscience is working. He even delights in God's word and he gives recognition to it. In fact, he loves God's law. He recognizes that there's no good thing in his flesh. So his confession of truth is right on. This man's confession, his mouth, can say the exact right things. Actually, he can talk the talk, but that's as far as it goes. Because as his experience goes on, he gets more and more wretched. He is miserable, and he is in despair, and he has to ask the question, what is wrong? And that's the rest of the message focus here. Verses 23 to 25. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of sin, but with the flesh the law the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. This man is a captive to sin, like in Romans eight two says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. This man is free Oh, in Romans 8, is free from the law of sin. It's no longer controlled. That's why Romans 7 is not describing a Christian. But I like to zero in a little bit in verse 25 because that is a little bit of a controversial verse because it looks like the man is divided. Did you ever look at that verse and wonder what that verse means? With the mind, I myself serve the law of God. Doesn't that sound like a Christian? It does, if you look at its surface value. We'll discuss it a little more. For a Calvinist who believes in the total depravity of mankind, this can't be a lost person. And you will, if you get into Calvinist circles, they will very clearly tell you that, in fact, one lady called up, no, wrote. One lady wrote to a famous preacher and asked how she can be sure of her salvation. She was struggling with the assurance of salvation. His answer was, the very fact that you are concerned about your salvation tells me that you're saved. Because people who are not saved, people who spirit of God is not worked in their hearts, don't care. They couldn't care less where they're going. They have no, no concern about their soul. Since you're, you're concerned about your soul, you're saved. That was his answer. I wish Jesus would have told that to the rich young ruler that came running to him. It's not true. Anyhow, 
What should we do with this eager mind who says, I am a slave to the law of God with my mind, but with my body I am a slave to the law of sin? What shall we do with this man? Well, first we look at the first statement. So then with my mind, I myself serve the law of God. Is that a positive statement or a negative statement? Is it positive or negative? What do you think? Hmm? You're all waiting for me to answer right. Okay. When he says... I served the law of sin. That means I am a slave, not the law of sin, and the law of God. I am a slave to the law of God. Look back in Romans chapter 7, verse 6, and here we find a comparison. But now we are delivered from the law. That being dead, wherein we were held, that we should serve in the newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. That is a very familiar verse. Serve in the spirit or serve in the letter. Go to the contrast there, okay? Now, what is wrong with the letter? Nothing. There's nothing wrong with the letter. The letter is good. The law is good. It's holy. It's spiritual. There is nothing wrong with the law of God. I have heard many people say that the law is bad and it's done away with. Scripturally, scripture properly understood does not say that. There is nothing wrong with the law. Not the law of God. Properly understood. In fact, if you could keep the law, you would live. Paul said that much. He said, the commandment which was ordained to life, but I found it to be unto death. So, So the problem is not the law. The problem is the flesh. It's my members. It's my carnality. And I can go after the law. See, this, this is where this man is at. Let me give you a description. He is, he is committed to the law of God. Get that. He is committed to the law of God. That's the problem. He's going to keep the law of God, but he can't. That's a negative statement. And why not? Well, he tries to keep the law of God, and he can't. And no wonder, because the law tells him what to do. The law commands him. And then he doesn't keep the law of God. And then what happens? Then the law criticizes him. 
And then the law condemns him. And so, this is a repetition. Command. Failure. Criticism. Condemnation. Command. Criticism. Condemnation. Command. Criticism. Condemnation. This man loves the law of God. He loves it. He tries to do it, and he fails, and it criticizes him, and it condemns him. Over and over. I hope you don't raise your children that way. No wonder this man is miserable. You know, this is the description of that unhappy marriage in the beginning of Romans chapter 7. Now, the marriage is implied unhappy. This woman was married to this man, and if she gets married to someone else, she'll be called an adulterer. So she had to wait till that man dies before she could get married to someone else. And then the illustration is gives you need to die to the law so you get married to Christ. That's what this man hasn't done yet. Turn to Galatians chapter 2. I'd like to finish in this area here about the legal man. Galatians chapter 2. Verse 19, for I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. And I read that again in the English Standard Version. For through the law, I died to the law, that, so that I might live to God. There has to be a severing before there can be a reattachment. If there is a severing, when that man says, I, with my mind, serve the law of God. Let me go back there, get there, make sure I got it right. I with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. There has to be a severing of that serving servanthood to the law, to something else. He needs to die to that kind of life. Something has to die so he can get married to something else. And Galatians 2.20 then says the same thing that actually Romans is saying, that I... After he died to the law, after he died to the law so that he could live unto God, then he said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And that's just echoing Romans chapter 6 and 7 and 8 all over again. So then, with the mind, I serve the law of God is not a good thing, but is actually the problem that must be fixed. And we'll close the message with this little, you may have heard this already. Run, John, and live, the law commands, but gives me neither legs nor hands. Better news the gospel brings, it, brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. And that's where we'll lead the natural man and the legal man 
and we'll pick up the evangelical or the spiritual man next time. So may the Lord bless you and just remind you that one of us, every one of us, is in one of those three states. The natural man or the legal man or the spiritual man. May God bless you.